I'd like to figure that out because right now, like, I write everything with code, but if I can figure out how to do apps with magic, that sounds much <laughs> <laughs> This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Berkeley, California. Alondo Brington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a guest this week, Corey Foy. Hi there from North Carolina as well. Do you want to give us some background on you real quick, Corey? Sure. So I have a pretty interesting storied background on both the development and kind of process side. So I've been in the development world for like 15 years and have gotten to see a lot of interesting changes over that time period as we see more web adoption and mobile adoption and have been working in the mobile space for well over 10 years now. And lately, what I've been focused on is helping uh, a set of therapists who work with severely disabled children help figure out how they can incorporate technology into their day-to-day operations. So that's what the focus of our company has been and the apps that we've been building are, how can we kind of help them help their children using the technology that they have around them? That's really interesting. Is that what you mean by therapeutic app design? It does, because what we found was the apps that are out there right now There's a lot of apps that are out there targeting autistic children or children that need help learning different things, but it's a different game whenever you're talking about therapist-led work. And so what we found was that the apps themselves, you had to think very hard about different pieces and parts of the app and how they operated, and then also how they interacted between the therapist and the person that they were working with, whether that's an adult or a child and how the app itself allowed that interaction. So a lot of our focus had been on saying, now that we're using this for therapy, right, where you can really mess people up if you get some things wrong, how do we make an app that allows for it to be used in that kind of an environment? What are some kind of use cases for this app you're talking about? Well, the specific case that we're building for, um, so the, our, our company, Pretty Cool Apps, we launched uh, because my aunt and a couple of her colleagues are speech-language pathologists, and they work within a public school system in Florida. And what they ran into was that a lot of the materials that they had kind of fell into three categories. One, they were very old paper-based materials. So they had been around a long time and the therapists would have to carry these giant carts of materials from classroom to classroom that they worked in. The second was a lot of highly specialized hardware. And where they saw that was it would be effective, but parents would have to pay five or six or seven thousand dollars for a single device in order to work with their children through these devices. Then what we saw was the, of course, the iPad adaption, right? And suddenly people have a tablet and they can go spend three or $400 on a tablet and have this thing that was wonderful, 
and was really portable. But a lot of the applications that were on there didn't take into account that some of these kids were very severe. As, as an example of that, the first app that we released was called the Yes No app. It literally teaches kids how to say yes and no to things because they don't know how to do that. And we're not talking about like babies. Like these are school-age children who have severe disabilities who we need to teach the difference between being able to say yes and being able to say no. So that was kind of the target market that we went after was saying, how can we help therapists working with these kids to be really effective in a way that the parents can also be able to afford the equipment to work with them and the therapists themselves on public school teacher budgets can be able to afford these tools and not have to lug around these giant carts of materials. That's very interesting. So is the therapeutic app design specific to these kinds of apps that are designed to help these kids or adults, you know, be better at functioning in the world? Or can these concepts be applied to other apps that just anybody is going to use? Well, so I think it's both. I think that there's some lessons that we can learn from the apps that really we should all be taking into an account with the apps that we build regardless. It's kind of similar to the idea of web accessibility. There was a, a time when you really had to remind people to put alt tags into their images and to be thinking about, you know, web screen readers and those kinds of, of things. And as we've kind of progressed, some of that stuff is becoming integrated into our tools. And I think that as we look at building these mobile apps now, we have to consider that not everybody is touching the screen. As, as not intuitive as that is, there are people who completely use apps using voiceover, you know, who, who aren't seeing the screen, who are relying on the screen being able to be read with them. And similar to what we did in the web world back in the late 90s where we said, you know, take a day or a couple of days and try using it using a, you know, a non or a text-based browser or voiceover browser or something. We have these phenomenal toolkits built directly into the iOS framework around accessibility. And what we need to do is be taking our apps and doing things like Hey, let's try our app with voiceover and what happens. And an example is there's a, um, a guy on Twitter named Kevin Jones, who I met at the Madison Ruby conference uh, last year. And he is blind, but he uses and writes about technology on his iPhone because he, he's blind. So he uses everything via voiceover. And he talks about a situation where he uh, used this app to determine when the next buses were coming. And one day, it just stopped giving him this information. He knew he could touch this one spot, and it would stop giving him information. So he talked to some people who could see what was going on, and the developers had released a new version of the app where they had replaced this button, this list of bus stops, with an interactive map to show when the bu- where the buses were, and you could click on the pen of the bus to show where it was, if you could see the pen, <laughs> which he could not, right? So, so this, the, this app, which was this phenomenally useful thing, suddenly became useless to him because he couldn't visualize the information. So I think from, from, from one aspect of it, it's really important to be thinking about accessibility and therapeutic uses and how people who aren't just like us, who are using the apps and thinking from it that way. 
But there's also a second point. And I think that the, the second point is really where we made the decision to build our own framework and build our own apps, uh, not our own accessibility framework, but where we really said there's a lot of things people don't take into consideration that we needed to as part of a therapeutic model of, of application building. So as an example, a lot of apps out there, when you think about what we're trying to do, especially those targeted towards kids, they tend to be fairly flashy, right? They want to keep the kids engaged. They know that kids tend to have a lower, you know, time before they go, okay, I'm not interested in this. So they, the apps do things like, as soon as you get the answer right, it flashes a big check mark and it goes, yay, you did it! Or, you know, says certain things or plays music and shoots fireworks and then like advances to the next thing. Well, what we run into was that is all of those things are completely awful when you're trying to teach a kid, like think about this first app that we built, yes, no, right? You don't want these flashy graphics. For some of the kids, it's overwhelming. And you don't want lots of noises because that can be distracting in a, in a setting. But the worst part is you don't want it to just auto advance to the next thing because then the teacher or the therapist is not having the ability to have what we call a teachable moment with the child. So like an example of the app is we show a picture of a dog and then we ask the question below, is this a picture of a dog or is this a dog? And they would click on yes or no. And if they clicked on no, then the teacher would want to have a conversation with them about that rather than it just them just clicking yes and it moving to the next um, next screen. And even from that perspective, so it's funny, even thinking about something as simple as that, pictures of a, of a dog, we ran into the problem of needing to be very clear and very precise and unambiguous with the questions that we were asking and the pictures that we were showing. So as an example, one of our questions is, is this an eye? like an eyeball, right? And we have associated with it a, a picture that shows an actual like zoomed in picture of an eye. But we got feedback from some of the therapists that kids were getting confused when it was showing, when it was asking the question about the eye and showing the picture of the dog because the dog has an eye on it. And so then it was some of those kids, they were getting confused. Or we would say, is this a pizza? And we would show a piece of pizza and the kids would say, no, it's not a pizza. It's a piece of pizza. Or no, those aren't pants. Those are jeans, right? So there was a lot of work that we really had to go into to think about how can people interpret not only the questions that we're asking, but the answers that they're seeing to make sure that there's never a question in their mind about what is showing up, especially because in our app itself, we randomize the questions in the pictures. So it's not like we're setting out a timeline where we can ensure all of that. So part of the challenge from a development perspective was saying, how can I build a randomized set of data and questions so that any answer will still be able to clearly make sense to somebody who's struggling to even know the answers to yes or no? So, Corey, in finding out, sort of working through these issues and, and going through the user testing, is it a close relationship with a specific group of, of therapists that you work with that are the users or, or are you using some external sources for testing? So in our particular case, we are working with a, a close set of users, and that's been fantastic because they're working directly with kids in a school system, and they have broader access to a larger pool of therapists. 
And so we get a lot of feedback from them. But there's actually a startup here in Raleigh called Learn Trials. And what they're working on is the ability to, to take information like this and apps like this and run like you would run a clinical trial, run clinical trials with apps and the data from them. So what we could do in that case is say, we think that a yes no app will increase the ability of kids to recognize their, you know, increase their abilities of being able to recognize yes or no, you know, increase it by 30%. And they have the ability to distribute that and run that in a clinical trial type environment to give us that data back. So we haven't started using that, but I've been, I've talked with them and I'm really kind of interested in that, especially as you get more and more therapy apps where you're, you're saying, again, these are kids with, with challenges and problems, and you want to make sure that you're not causing harm, right? Like this kind of the Hippocratic earth, first do no harm. Same kind of thing from app design, whenever you're targeting, making, you know, helping children or helping adults is we want to first do no harm. So I like that movement towards saying we're moving beyond user testing and kind of qualitative testing to actually saying, how can we quantify the impact that we're having even with mobile apps that we're building, you know, that we threw together in a weekend. I think that's really interesting because I've always been a bit skeptical of, so I've got a little, a little boy and um, surprisingly enough, he likes to play with uh, my wife's iPad. And um, so we have like these kind of educational games and I'm kind of doing educational in air quotes there. I actually have no idea whether there's any, any science or any basis at all to whether these things are actually educational in any way. Like he likes playing with them because they're kind of toy-like and they look kind of like they're teaching him something. But I've always wondered how much science actually goes on behind all these things. Right. It's not even just saying, are they learning something? It's saying, are they actually being harmed by some of this stuff? Like there was the uh, the issue with baby Einsteins a couple of years ago where they said, you know, it was this set of, of TV things where the kids would watch it and, and learn things supposedly from watching it. And then the recommendations came out that that actually was somewhat harmful to some of the kids. And they recommended that no child that was under two be watching TV for certain reasons. So that's really my bigger concern is, you know, I want kids to enjoy it. Not everything has to necessarily be a learning opportunity, but that we absolutely don't want to be harming children, especially when we're talking about how are we helping kids learn and are we helping them learn in the right way. So are you aware of this same kind of actual science approach being done with educational, with apps that are, I guess, targeting the more general population of, of educational things for kids versus therapeutic apps? I am not offhand. As I said, the, uh, the, the startup here in Raleigh, I, I've talked with them and I know that they've done some work around that with some companies, but I haven't seen it. And I think part of that is if we think about the majority of iOS developers that are out there or, or mobile app developers, it kind of mirrors the idea of most business owners in the States, which is that they're small, small shops. And so the idea of of doing a clinical trial of your, your mm-hmm. app to reach out is just overwhelming. So I like the idea of saying, I think that if we make that easier to reach out, more people would be willing to do that. I'm a little fearful of saying this, but almost a, the idea of a certification process to be able to say, hey, we've run trials and we can show that this has these kinds of impacts, I think would go a long way if we did both sides of that, where we as a community said, if you were going to claim educational benefits, back that data up, 
And by the way, we have tools so that doesn't cost you hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars to go do that. So are there, are there uh, HIPAA compliance issues as well for a therapeutic app like this? That is a fantastic question. We have worked very hard to ensure that we don't fall into any HIPAA rules. So from our perspective, what we've done is we don't capture any data about the children. And we've talked to some districts about the idea of saying, so we want to give it to 30 students and let them practice, and we want to capture the results of that without running into HIPAA regulations. And so um, I've worked a lot with HIPAA before, and the trick is just disassociating the data and the IDs. So in those kinds of cases, what we're doing is saying, okay, there's a unique identifier, and that's the only thing that we know about, and we don't know who the child is or anything else like that. Um, but certainly you can run into that where even something as simple as knowing that a child has the application can reveal certain pieces of information that you have to be careful of. So I think that it's a gray area, but I don't think that it's an insurmountable one with a little bit of thought process behind it. So you mentioned kind of at the start of the show that, that there was in, in the pre in the pre iPad or iOS world, there's there's lots of kind of specialized devices that are used, kind of therapeutic devices that are used. I'm kind of interested. Can you give some examples of what those kind of specialized devices are? Because I, I don't have any background in this, so I'm naive. You know, I can't say that I do, but they a lot of them looked like portable computers and that kids would use or they were... Um, I, I think that we haven't seen as much of them lately since the tablet revolution has come about because why would you spend $3,000 on a specialized device whenever you can have an iPad? Now, what's interesting is that we are seeing some cases of apps that are fairly expensive. So in the couple hundred dollar range that are therapeutic apps, which are, you know, HIPAA compliant and do all sorts of, of things as part of that, that, that people are able to buy for their iPads. But I think that, that what we're seeing right now is that the platform as a whole has enabled the innovation to focus not on these hardware devices, but on actually the innovation of just building the software and delivering it that way. That's very interesting. So one thing that you talked about earlier, I, I, I'm kind of curious about, you're talking about creating like a multi-user app, you know, where the kid is not generally doing everything. There's also, you know, a therapist involved, you know, having the teachable moment. Kind of what lessons have you learned from trying to design for apps that are used by multiple people at the same time? That's something that most of us don't really deal with. So I think what we found by that was focusing on what the end game was. And I think in this case, the end game was saying, what is important in the app isn't the app, but it's the conversation and communication that happens between the therapist and the child or the therapist and their patient, because that's what we're really trying to enable, right? That goes back to that. I love that term of a teachable moment. That's what it really comes down to. I know in my own classes, when I teach organizations different topics, the power of it comes from those aha moments. And a lot of times those aha moments aren't in the tool that we're using itself, but in something that happens that, that flips in our brain or that something that a, another person says or that the, the instructor says. So we wanted to be able to maximize those. And to maximize those, we found that we had to slow the process of the app down, which again, that kind of runs counterintuitive to a lot of the gamification efforts that we take with applications of let's keep things flashy, let's keep everybody going so we don't, you know, lose their interest. 
But in this case, it's really saying we're going to be explicit about when they can move forward. So as an example, on the app itself, we made the decision that they can't move forward until they get the answer correct. And further, the only way they can move forward is there's a small arrow in the upper right-hand corner that they have to click. So it's not this big, you know, press here to go next, but it's really designed to say, okay, the upper right-hand corner is where the therapist operates and the big buttons are where the child operates. So that that way it creates the space to say, here's where the therapist's control has some control over it and here's the work area for the kid and the two of them are segregated so that there's not a lot of accidental hits between the two areas. And that gives that control back to the therapist to make the decision to say, okay, now we're ready to advance and we're advancing on my own cue. So as far as if they're using it at the same time, typically the way that it works is that they're sitting together. So primarily the child is using it with a therapist operating with them, talking to them. Now we've what we've been working on for the next release of the app is, I almost use the term voiceover, but it, it uses voice commands as well with this so that we can basically use it in an unattended mode so that the child can hear what the app is saying, select the answer, and then it can advance. So we kind of give both options to say, okay, in one instance, the therapist has the control. But in another instance, we want it to autoplay so the child can interact with the application and play with it. That's very cool. So do you have any other lessons learned, like when developing an app with side-by-side? Sometimes if I'm trying to like demo an app and I have it pointing the other way or have it all off-center, not directly in front of me, I try and press a button and I always miss. Are there, did you <laughs> run across that? And um, other, what, how do you handle that? There's not always great ways of handling that, unfortunately. So I, we've worked with apps in industrial environments. And in those cases, we found that it were, was really handy to have like the little styluses. So that way they kind of felt more like they were you know, the teacher had a little more control over some of this stuff. So in, in the industrial environments, we were building apps for people who were welding giant pipes and, you know, big oil rigs and things like that. So in that case, they had gloves on so they couldn't touch it. But we still found a lot of the same principles of make it easy with the stylus. They had a lot, a lot easier time with it. But as far as the side by side, I think that the two biggest things were that we learned out of building this were the, the one, the one I've harped on, which is the auto advance and the, the not flashy graphics, right? Like keeping the interactions to a minimum or allowing the interaction level to be set. So maybe make it exciting for some people and being able to tone it down for others and control that. And then the second thing is really the idea of, especially in therapy apps, making things very clear and very unambiguous so that there isn't confusion on top of already having to try to teach the lesson. Because that's where people tend to get frustrated is when there's when things aren't clear and things are kind of confusing, they're not sure about if they want to continue. You know, they're already learning. They're already in a mindset of having this cognitive load on them about, you know, a child learning to say yes or no. There's a lot of cognitive work going on there. And from both the child and the therapist, the last thing that you want to do is have a situation where any part of it is confusing with them. So we do a lot of testing with therapists in working situations, getting their feedback, and then immediately turning around and incorporating it. And in fact, you know, I think that that's one other thing that I'll, I'll say 
one of the biggest rules that I have whenever I build uh, applications, client applications, is that I want to be able to contact the user and explain to them how to solve their problem before they've contacted me that they have a problem. And so the idea of the application was we wanted to be able to very rapidly respond to therapists whenever they had questions. So from that perspective, we made it very easy for them to know how to contact us. And when they contacted us, even though we're a fairly small company, we responded as rapidly as we possibly could to them to say, yes, we've gotten your information. Is this a workaround that's going to work for you? If this is not a workaround that's going to work for you, here's when we would be able to incorporate it or bring it in. So that way, they felt like we were on their side as well because we take the idea that this isn't just a game, this is a therapy app very, very seriously. So I I, I kind of want to change tactics a little bit because it seems like you guys have tackled a specific niche with a specific need. And I'm curious, do you feel like that changes the conversation a little bit from people who are writing more generally of general interest, I guess, like games or, you know, like task management or something like that on your phone. Do you have to have a deeper understanding of the industry that you're getting into? Or did you kind of figure that out as you went along? Um, so I think that there are some lessons that we learned which are specific to the niche that we're in. And that's why we ended up where we were. But I think in general, some of the principles are applicable to, you know, other people who are writing apps, right? Because if we think about a lot of the design aspects of this, there's common sense that's in here. Um, the idea of clarity, the idea of, you know, doing what is necessary and, and making things very easy to use. There's a great book called Don't Make Me Think that was a really kind of a hallmark of web usability. And I think that we need to remember those principles as we're building out our applications. And I think one of the great things about working on the iPhone platform as opposed to the Android platform is uh, that we have a limited set of devices to operate from. And the idea of usability and the design of the app is so built in to Apple's way of doing things that, in fact, you can't get your app accepted if you're not following certain design guidelines. So I think that that in itself has brought us a long way towards the idea of good design of applications and impacting how we do things from, you know, games to task managers. And then the second part of that was what I was saying before, like, let's remember that not all of our users are going to be like us, right? And so some of them are going to be using it with, you know, limited capabilities of, of muscles. And some of them are going to be using it with voiceover. So taking that time to actually go through the iOS accessibility guidelines and thinking through what that is, I think that that's a really important thing for so many of us to do. It doesn't work for all of us, right? There are like a certain games that's not going to work. Certain games rely on being able to see, see things. If your app doesn't have to rely on that, thinking about how to provide options, like the bus stop that I was talking about with, with Kevin's idea, where they had a list of buses and then they changed that to an interactive map. It's having in your mindset of what happens whenever we change this design element and we're changing it for a reason, but what does that enable or disable 
for certain conditions, right? How does that change how people can interact with our app? And it's just having that awareness and that mindset and that context in there, I think impacts a lot of how we, we operate, not just in how we build our apps, but how we interact with our users as well. Yeah, I think Apple have a lot of really good resources out there around accessibility as well. I think they have a really good WWDC talk. I'm, I'm guessing they, they do a good one every year, but I know a couple of years ago they had a really good WWDC talk talking about accessibility and voiceover and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And it's great to see that we just as developers need to actually go listen to them <laughs> and watch them and think about those kinds of, of things. I've spent some time over in India working with teams over there, and I get a lot of people who ask me, you know, what is India like, or, or you know, what are other countries like? And the thing that I tell them is that I can explain certain things to you, but you don't necessarily have the context to really understand what I'm saying. And I think it's that same kind of way with accessibility. We can talk about accessibility, but until you've actually turned voiceover on for your app and tried to use it just with that, and said, am I able to get the key things out of my app that I would expect people to be able to use with voiceover, using voiceover, until we actually try to do that, we miss that context of, of how important this is for, for people who are using it and how much people use our apps anyways because they don't necessarily have a choice and they want to be able to use it and so they kind of work around some of the limitations. So just taking that context and trying it on our own and understanding where we're coming at will help no matter what type of app that we're building. I think it's an interesting exercise to be able to put on some blindfolds and try and use your app. I know most of the apps I work on would have failed. Yeah, <laughs> there was a terrific talk given at Mountain West uh, JavaScript Conference uh, by Ryan Florence. I'll put the link into the show notes here. But anyway, he basically pulled up a website and then he, he set some CSS so that it was all effectively blank. And then he had the reader read the page and, you know, was like, how could anybody make any sense out of this just based on this? You know, it, it's really interesting. And I think it kind of gives you that just a little bit of empathy for, you know, oh my goodness, you know, somebody who can't see this web page couldn't use this web page because it's just impossible. Yeah, definitely. Back, back in the day when things were basically text driven, you could, you, probably use like links and translate that to, into speech, but with a lot of newer websites, that doesn't really play out. It's so, so visually driven. So yeah, it's good they, to have empathy for other approaches. They do have accessibility options for you. There's ARIA and things like that. In fact, I'll put a link to... We, we did a Ruby Rogues episode on accessibility as well with somebody who was visually impaired. And, you know, again, it was just kind of that it kind of wakes you up to the fact that how important it is and, and what what kind of a difference it makes to these folks. And I know that these are web-based things, but as Corey pointed out, Apple has a ton of tools for accessibility. So uh, you should definitely go check those out as well. And, and really, honestly, we, even back in the late 90s and early 2000s, so I worked for government. And in government, we were required by law to provide our apps as accessible. So I would say that I have not seen a giant leap forward from, you know, the more static sites of the late 90s to the dynamic ones we have today. I haven't seen this giant leap forward in usability, but at least people are, are thinking about it more and more of our frameworks and toolkits are building it in. And I think that in iOS, they make it so 
dog easy to do it that just simply turning it on and simply thinking about it and giving a little bit of thought process to it helps everybody, you know, not just blind people or, or people who are, are disabled. It helps everybody because you're thinking about the design and usability of your application, which is, that can be just a big win regardless. It is really surprising how much you get for free from Apple. And, and it's, it's almost like, you, like, I mean, I guess this is what you're saying. It's just, if you turn it on and see, you'll see that you're, you know, 80% of the way there and you just need to make a few little changes. And it's not like, most of the time, it's not huge, you know, structural changes to, to the UI. It's just like, oh, this is an image uh, that says OK. And the um, accessibility framework has no idea that it says OK. So I need to add a little tech, a little, you know, accessibility identifier that says that it's a button and that it says okay and then the screen reader will work then voiceover will work it's it's normally not a huge chunk of of effort to do and an interesting thing is you know in, in the web a lot of how we do automated testing relies on accessibility in the browser so by making controls and making things accessible you make them easier for some of those automated tests and I think that we're going to see the same thing and, and we do see some of that same thing in the mobile world where we're going to start seeing a lot better support around automated testing of things. And it's going to rely very heavily on having these accessibility elements in because they're in anyways. And so for free, we can inspect and, and walk the app using those accessibility APIs. That's that's absolutely true. So as someone who who built one of those tools, it's true. All of the testing tools out there use accessibility identifies as the as the primary uh, way of understanding the semantics of the application because if you think about it the an automated testing tool needs to understand what's in the UI so a machine can read it just like voiceover needs to understand what's in the UI so a machine can read it so there is very interesting analog there do you know how these accessibility features stack up against other platforms like Android or Windows I know they're better than than Android not not because I'm Android bashing I just know that Apple are very focused on this and and have applied a a really systematic approach to to giving you most of it for free. There's definitely equivalents in Android world. From what I've heard, not from first-hand experience, they're a little bit more effort to get working. I worked for Microsoft in in a former life and um the uh there is a big focus around accessibility because if you think about at that level and Apple as well, they're doing government contracts, and government contracts require accessibility to, to be built in and part of the platform. Mm-hmm. So I haven't worked with the, the latest versions of, of Windows Phone, but I know that during my time there, accessibility was a, a very important thing throughout the whole Windows ecosystem. So I'd imagine that they've done a lot of work to that. But I think, again, one of your challenges between the, the three platforms are Android has this amazing market share, but it also has this amazing number of devices that are different screen sizes and different resolutions that, that are a little trickier to support from, from certain elements. So the idea of, and I'm not familiar with the accessibility ecosystem there, but the idea of accessibility there seems like it would only help as you're trying to do some of your designs across different devices because you're thinking about non-standard stuff anyways it should be end up being a lot more adaptable to certain, you know, screen sizes and, and frame rates and things like that. But I'm not an Android expert, so don't, don't, <laughs> don't take that from me. Is anybody really at this point? Can I pass on that question? Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Global mute button. 
Tumbleweed. All right. Well, Pete, do you want to start the picks? My picks are short but sweet this week. I'm going to pick a really dated article. It's actually all the way from 2010, but it, it's really good. It's good enough that uh, Apple apparently used to link to it when talking to people about accessibility. So a guy called Matt Gemmel, or Gemmel, I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name, very smart Scottish guy who uh, wrote an article about accessibility for iPhone and iPad, and it's just a really good intro article on how this stuff works and also why it's important. So it's it's a really good read. Maybe some stuff is a little bit out of date by now, but most of the fundamental stuff will be the same. So that's a good place to get started if you want to kind of start educating yourself around all this accessibility stuff we were just talking about. My next pick is going to be a plug. So a friend of mine just started working at a startup in San Francisco called Partender, and they are looking for iOS devs. So if you are an iOS dev in the San Francisco Bay Area, or possibly even outside the San Francisco Bay Area, I don't know, and you want to work on a cool app, then get in touch with them. Go to angel.co slash partender, that's P-A-R tender, uh, slash jobs, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Awesome. Alondo, what are your picks? Okay, I have a couple of picks that are actually, uh, one's a video, and it is uh, Matt Thompson's presentation from the uh, recent alt-conf in San Francisco, uh, and I think it's apropos just because there are a lot of changes right now in the iOS development environment, as well as the, uh, as we were talking about accessibility, wanting to uh, incorporate these things. And basically the topic is about being a beginner again. It's very short, but I, I thought it was a very good presentation and just talks about the mindset of being a beginner. We all have an opportunity right now with Swift and a lot of the new APIs. Uh, and it's a great way to encourage people to uh, really think about the opportunity there and just framing their mind for starting something new. And along with that, there is a podcast uh, by uh, Scott Hanselman called Hansel Minutes. And it's uh, the topic is uh, what it really means to be a junior developer. And I, and I, it struck me just because in certain ways with a new language or with new APIs, uh, you are a junior again in, in certain aspects. And it talks a lot about the mindset there, how to treat other people as well who are truly junior developers, whether it's in development as a whole or on a platform. So I think those are, are, are two great listens. Uh, and my third pick is a is a, a triple-style golden ale that I find just absolutely delicious. It's called La Fin du Monde, and it is from Unibrow, uh, which is a Canadian brewery. If you are a beer drinker, I highly recommend it. All right. Jane, what are your picks? Okay. Well, I'm going to have one pick. So I was up on the North Shore of Lake Superior last year, and we went to this farm that makes maple syrup. And while we were there, we stopped. We found out about a grade B maple syrup, which I didn't know existed, but is is fantastic. So most of the maple syrup you're going to buy, like the pure maple syrup, is grade A, which is a little bit lighter. And grade B, they kind of label for cooking and stuff like that. But if you actually like maple syrup, this is more of what you like about it. So kind of a dark, rich flavor. Take a look for it. If you can find grade B maple syrup, it's fantastic. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one I'm going to pick is that talk by uh, Ryan Florence that I mentioned before. Another pick that I have is Trello, which is kind of a project management tool. It's a Kanban board, if you're familiar with the term. If not, just go check it out. But it's really simple, and that's why I like it. And so uh, I've been using it, and I've found a few features on it that I really like, such as being able to email stories onto a board. And uh, that's, that's all I've got this week. Corey, what are your picks? So I have four. 
Um, the first one, uh, Matt actually has an updated article about, uh, he calls it iOS Accessibility Hero and Villains, and uh, he shows some examples of different apps and, and the challenges in voiceover with that. Um, the second one is uh, the trial, learn trials. So that was the company that I was talking about trying to enable clinical trial type um, management for, for apps and for some other things. The third one is uh, our company, so prettycoolapps.com. Um, so that's that's our actual company. So I figured I'm safe to do that. And the fourth one, since uh, I heard a funny one earlier, um, is a game I've been spending a lot of time on called Goat Simulator. They just released it for OS X as well. So uh, it's available on Steam. You basically cause lots of chaos as a goat. So it's a pretty good way of killing some uh, some time and releasing some stress. So that sounds like too much fun. <laughs> I like to eat grass and headbutt people. So this should be cool. It's a perfect game for you. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming, Corey. I really appreciate you taking the time, and hopefully we'll get some people to go check out the accessibility stuff in iOS. Yeah, and, and, you know, from your listeners' perspective, if they have questions, feel free to have them contact me. I'm pretty easy to find on on the interweb, so always happy to answer questions or, or point people to different resources as well. All right, great. Thanks for coming. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 